a close reading of Nephi's expansive vision, beginning in 1 Nephi 11, shows us that sometime in the future that plain and precious truths were prophesied to be taken from the Bible. The result of that would cause Gentiles who read it and followed it to stumble and the consequences of their stumbling. Nephi goes on to explain where those plain and precious truths would be restored and how they would be restored. Join us today in search of plain and precious truths that enliven our lives and cause Gentiles to cease their stumbling. Welcome to the Hidden Treasures Podcast, where we explore the rich doctrines of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Drawing on both inspired teachings and the latest research, we examine closely the revealed scriptures of the Restoration. Of course, opinions expressed do not constitute official pronouncements of the Church or its leaders. These classes are recorded live and taught by Kevin Hinckley. Thank you for taking a moment to subscribe and leave us a comment. And now, on to today's class. Let's begin today. Um, one of the things that fascinates me and continues to fascinate me is as we're looking at, first of all, Lehi's dream, and then we get into Nephi's vision of all of that, it's incredible to me two things. One, it's incredible that we have Lehi's dream that then Nephi and the Spirit then give us like the history of the world off the dream. You don't necessarily see the dream, you just, this was a, Initially, Lehi's dream was mainly about his kids and his grandkids and what would happen when Laman and Lemuel said no and what would happen and how the Lord would take that. Nephi gets an incredibly much more expanded view of this. Um, now, about so when we get a chance to get introduced to Nephi not just as a prophet, not just as a leader, but as a writer. And so with Nephi, we're going to get things like poems, like Second uh, Nephi 4, the Psalm of Nephi. When we get to Second Nephi 4, we'll go through the Psalm of Nephi and how, how very Hebraic and Psalm-like Second uh, Nephi 4 is. Okay? Now, in this dream, though, we get Nephi, the, I wanna, the nonfiction writer who is incredibly poetic. And so it was... It was fascinating to me as I look at, if I can get this, to, there we go, okay. You're going to have a hard time reading that first, aren't you? You know, for right now, I think I'll do this. There are times that Nephi writes like a Hebrew. <laughs> like an Israelite. The, uh, the, the, the Hebraic way of writing is generally to place, um, to, to, to write a description like this. So it's always going to be 
uh, oft times the adjective first and then the noun later. So you're always going to get the, or the descriptor first and then the noun last. So when we, and a good example of that is the iron rod. We, in English, we call it the iron rod. What did they call it in the Book of Mormon? Rod of iron. So it's of. So what, what you get is something like um, Bethlehem. House of bread is Bethlehem. Iron, the rod of iron is the way that that's always a son of God. And so it makes sense that a lot of times we're getting this part, the Lamb of God. And so we're, and th that would be, that would work. Okay. So he's going to use that term. Or we're going to get the book of the Lamb of God, which is what? Uh, hold on, okay. We're going to get to the book of the Lamb of God. The Spirit says exactly who the book of the Lamb of God is. Okay. Or the church of the Lamb of God. You could say... God's church, or you can say Lamb's church. That would be English. This is very Hebrew, okay? But he's going to use these terms, but then he shifts, and, I, and I've been searching, and I can't find this. I think it, it's a unique style, and you don't necessarily find it in Hebrew, but you're finding it all through this dream especially, and he's going to always give you a dualistic, two adjectives, noun, Blank and blank, blank. Okay? And it is consistent. And there's a lot of them. And they are poetic because they stick in our head. The best poetry rings in our head like still, small voice. When, uh, when uh, Tinsdale was writing that, there was a lot of ways he could have said that phrase. But he coined the phrase still, small voice. And we remember it. Okay. So, but with Nephi, he left large and spacious building. Plain and precious truth. Here's the alliteration. It just, it just kind of rolls. And this is, this is Nephi. And again, you don't really see this anywhere else in the Book of Mormon, but you see it in this dream. And you hear Nephi using this. So that, that tells me that this isn't Mormon's writing of Nephi. This is Nephi in the way that he's doing this. Peace and life eternal. This is peace and life eternal. Okay. Okay, now, but where he really gets rolling is on the bad side of things. If he's going to talk about the, the negative stuff, the other, listen, listen to the terms that he uses here. Dark and dreary wilderness. Dark and dreary wilderness. Does that convey the feeling of that? Dark and dreary waste. And then he gets going on the greats. Great is often, this is really big and is really bad. Great and abominable church. Great and spacious building. Great 
and terrible gulf. As I was reading through this, the, these phrases just kept jumping out at me, okay? And you see this pattern. Great and terrible judgments. If somebody is a linguist, I'd love to know if this has another, if this is like an Egyptian thing or if this is ancient Aramaic or something like that. Because I'm seeing a pattern here that tells me it's something. I just don't know what it is. Mother of abominations. Mother of harlots. Now, here he's, he's, it's a little bit more traditionally Hebrew. He could say, but, but uh, harlot's mother or abomination's mother or something like that, but that's very Hebrew. Mother of abominations. Vapor of darkness. Vain imaginations. Vain of imaginations probably wasn't going to work, but vain imaginations work. Dark and loathsome. Now, you could be in any, almost any place with uh, Latter-day Saints and you wouldn't know each other was Latter-day Saints, but if you said dark and dreary, mother of harlots, <laughs> you go, great and spacious building, they'd go, oh, you're LDS. <laughs> it's like this common thing. We, we know these phrases really well, Okay. Fine twined, fine twine, here's the alliteration, fine twine linen. They are all memory hooks that just hook themselves into your brain and enough that you can remember them and it conjures up and it fine twine linens. You'd picture that pretty easily. Dark and loathsome. Dark and dreary waste. Oh, yes, yes, we love that kind of stuff. Okay. I know. Can you think of any others off the top of your head? I think I got most of them, but doesn't mean they're not out there. But can you hear the po poeticness of Nephi? Okay. All right. So that said, so let's let's dive in here. I'm gonna expand this. I think it's a linguistic tool. I just don't know what it is. Yeah, I mean, I've heard things like uh, mother of all wars, mother of all wars. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, yes. But it's still, mother of is still very much a... Okay. All right, well, let's get over to First Nephi 13. Uh, and there is so much here, again, we could spend probably the rest of the semester on 12, 13, 14. We're not going to do that. I'm trying to get through a lot of 13 and 14 today. But I wanted to pick out a couple of relevant sections. And then kind of a, the, uh, what I found is I, as I was looking through this, there's kind of a hidden, there's a hidden allegory that weaves its way in and out of here that unless you kind of are looking for it, you don't see it, but when you see it, you'll start to see it showing up all over. It's very, very cool. Um, and 
And, and so I to kind of get into this, I want to approach it from here. This is 1 Nephi 20. And it came to pass, I, Nephi, beheld that they did, the, the Gentiles, the mother Gentiles, uh, the, then there's the Gentiles coming out of captivity. And again, we're not going to go into all of that. You guys have read that numerous times. Beheld that they did prosper in the promised land. I beheld a book and it was carried forth among them. Okay. Now, the, Lehi has a book. Who gives Lehi the book? One of the twelve. Remember, they, the twelve come down. He give, and it's kind of the book of the abominations of Jerusalem. And he reads that, then that's going to give him the information to go preach and get stoned in Jerusalem, which then gives him the impetus to head out into the dark and dreary wilderness. <laughs> okay. But Nephi is going to run up against the book. Now, and, the, and I love this. You know, the angel says, you know the meaning of the book? And he goes, nope, I don't. My dad had a book. You're showing me that I have no idea what this book would be. And he says, behold, it proceedeth out of the mouth of a Jew. And he's going he's to repeat that phrase in 24. Thou hast beheld the book proceedeth out of the mouth of a Jew. What Jew might that be? What, what is this book that proceedeth forth out of the mouth of a Jew? Could, it, could be Moses. That would certainly, a lot of words came from Moses. Isaiah could be the mouth of a Jew. So if, if we use the, the word ah uh, in there. Yeah. And there's only one. It's become singular. It's, it's the Savior. It could easily be the Savior. and Because and I, I came down to two things. And I thought one could be potentially the Savior. The other one that occurred to me was maybe Paul. Uh, and I'll, I'll tell you why. It might be Paul. And, it, and it's in this part here. Thou hast beheld the book proceeded out of the mouth of a Jew. And when it proceeded forth from the mouth of the Jew, it contained the fullness of the gospel of the Lord, of whom the twelve apostles bear record, which would seem to suggest the Savior. And that would make sense. It could also be Paul, in the sense that Paul writes about a decade earlier than, than the gospels were written. And, they're real, and so he's laying the groundwork. Um, and the reason why it might be Paul is that a lot of the, the plain and precious truths are going to be taken out of this Jew's mouth as he's trying to spread the gospel out there. But they would have done the same thing to the Savior. Okay, so I, I, I go back and forth, and I think either one of those work. Um, so we're going to get this book. And this book is filled with a lot of words, and it contains the fullness of the gospel, Right? Of whom the twelve apostles bear record, they bear record according to the truth which is in the Lamb of God. Okay? Now, here's where the challenge comes in. Wherefore, these things, these, the fullness of the gospel, go forth from the Jews in purity to the Gentiles. And this is about when? Well... About 44 A.D., okay? And, and, and 50 and 60 as the Gospels are written and Paul's, Paul's writings in the 40s and early 50s and then the Gospels written from about 
about 55 to about 70 or 80. We think John finishes last probably around 90. Okay, so it's in that. So right in that period of time, this is now going in purity to the Gentiles. Okay, according to the truth which is in God. Okay, now crazy thing happens when it goes there. So now we're probably about first century A.D. And they go forth by the hand of the twelve apostles of the Lamb from the Jews unto the Gentiles. Now almost immediately as soon as they go out, what happens? Thou seest the, the formation, the starting of the great and abominable church as this is just going out there. So, so from a timeline, supposedly when is this, whatever this is, this great and abominable church, when is the formation of that? Almost immediately, within the first century or century, first century and a half. Okay, that that's why we have, and it used to be easy, especially back. You know, I, I remember hearing it in the '60s and '70s. Well, the great and abominable church is the Catholic Church, obviously. Okay. Well, by the time 300 years, by the time the Catholic Church is going to get this, this deed is done. It's already happened. And we, but we want to think church like an organized organization as opposed to the fact that there are two churches only, which means there's going to be shards of this great and abominable in a lot of places and in a lot of ways. Okay? And their goal is to do what? Well, most abominable, uh, verse 26, they have taken away from the gospel many parts which were plain and most precious. And so they take away plain and precious truths and then what else? Covenants. By taking away the truths, there are some covenants being made that the great and abominable church is removing from the truths as they're going to the Gentiles. So we're looking for two things, truths and covenants. Does that make sense? Okay. Uh, and also the covenants of the Lord they have taken away. Now, and let's see, and, and 29, um, well, 28, there are many plain and precious things taken away from the book, 29, and after these plain and precious things were taken away, they go forth into all nations of the Gentiles. All right, okay. He's going to tell you, these plain and precious truths, and they're going to actually go forward. Uh, ultimately, the Gentiles coming out of captivity uh, uh, are going to, it's going to be taken out, obviously, thousands of years before it gets to them. And he says, right in the middle of 29, which were plain to the understanding of the children of men according to the plainness of the Lamb of God. Okay? And then he gives you a little bit of a hint. And this is, this is where this allegory, I think, this kind of this hidden allegory shows up. Great many do stumble because of this. And Satan has great power over them. Now, let, let, me, let me take a second then and show where I think... this allegory suddenly started to emerge to me. Joseph Smith made a change. 
in this in the Book of Mormon in, from the 1830 edition to the 1837 edition. In, a, in verse 32, the, the, it now says, Neither will the Lord God suffer that the Gentiles shall forever remain in an awful state of blindness. Now, uh, one of the, the, the scholars that I follow most closely, uh, Terrell and Fiona Givens, uh, doing great work at the Maxwell Institute and the things that they're doing there. I, I would imagine Terrell Givens is probably the church's foremost biblical scholar at this moment. I think if you asked almost anybody at BYU, they would say, yeah, Terrell Givens is kind of leading the pack here. We really draw a lot. He and Fiona have, have written extensively about this change um, because the original 1830 edition, right, coming right off of the the, the manuscript says, Neither will the Lord God suffer the Gentiles shall forever remain in an awful state of woundedness. The, the word is, is striking, woundedness. Um, and, and one of the things that they then take, I want to give you an example of that. Uh, and, I, and I've talked about it in other places, but I want to just kind of remind us. Shall, ever, shall forever remain in an awful state of woundedness is the 1830 edition. And it was there for seven years before 1837. Okay, Let me give you an example of why the Givens think that that is so critical that the Gentiles were wounded and that wounded actually for them jumps out even more than blindness. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you that it's both. Um, and so here's an example uh, and I'm going to hop over now to uh, the New Testament over to Luke 7 47 and this is the woman that washes the Savior's feet with her tears in the, in the house of Simon the Pharisee uh, and boy we could spend a lot of time on that one we won't I love that I love everything that's happening in that experience but right at the end, there's an interesting thing. Um, Simon's a bit upset. Uh, this is in the, the town of Nain. Um, Savior says, well, you know, I entered your house. You didn't give me any water. She washed my feet with her tears. Uh, she has not stopped kissing my feet. Okay. And he says, shocking to the Pharisees, 47, wherefore I say unto thee, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she has loved much. But to, who, but to whom little is forgiven, the same loveth little. And he said unto her, you know, woman, thy sins are forgiven. And they were like, oh, really? Who is this guy, you know, that forgives sins? How can that be? And then interesting phrase here. 50, he said unto the woman, thy faith, according to the King James Version, thy faith hath saved thee, go in peace. Uh, if you look at this word, though, in Greek, uh, this, this word, thy faith hath saved, that's a King James Version based on 
kind of Middle Ages looking at sin and salvation. What this is in Greek is the word, thy faith hath sozo thee. Sozo meaning healed. And suddenly that jumps. Where you look at this and you say, your faith hath healed you. So now we start talking about from sin, not necessarily needing salvation. Again, that's Middle Ages. To if we have sin, what is it that we need? Healing. That, that idea of Christ as the physician, as the healer. And now every time, almost always, where it talks about saved in the New Testament, I go back to the Greek almost every time. It's sozo, meaning uh, that you've been healed from your malady. The word salvation is rooted in the word salve, which is a healing ointment. Yeah. And, so it all comes back. and Christ says himself early in Matthew that he's come to heal. That's right. With healing in my wings, he says. But that's often then, but when we talk about Christ as the judge, he'll be the judge, you know, assessing our crimes. If you start seeing him as the healer, suddenly we get Christ who is judging our progress. Like a doctor coming in to check on somebody in the hospital. He's doing rounds. <laughs> you know, he's going to come around. Oh, it's healing nicely. Very. You, you had a limp and your limp seems to be getting better. Okay. <laughs> you know, he's moving along. Well, I struggle with a lot of my sins. Great. Come to church, you know, working with you and stuff like that. Wow. Let, let, me, let me come visit with the bishop. Oh, you know, every two years. How are you doing? Oh, I'm doing better. Great. You know, so the bishop gets to be the judge of your progress. How are you moving along? How are you doing? Great. Uh, which is helpful because if we have, if, if, if we are, if a sin is committing a crime, that makes us a criminal. Who do criminals tend to avoid? The judge, the police. If you are, because of the things that you have done that maybe distance you from the Father and distance you from the Savior and distance you from the Spirit and you are wounded, what are you more likely to do? Look for a doctor. Get to the doctor, right? Okay. Uh, Again, you get uh, the... uh, Imagine if under that old idea of looking at this, if you had... uh, the, the prodigal son and the prodigal son is coming back and the father is waiting for him and here comes the prodigal son up the road and, and the father says to him hold on, okay you haven't necessarily paid for everything that you, all the havoc you wreaked why don't you hang in town and when you have paid off your debt, penance repentance when you paid off your debt then you can join us instead what does the father do he runs to him and embraces him. Embraces give him the, the signet ring, put the, my robe on his shoulders, and then say to the town, my son was lost, now he's found. He was dead, now he's alive. Where he's being, he, he needs healing, he doesn't need condemnation. Let's, let's, have a, let's have a meal. Yeah. One of the other things, I guess this is off on a little bit different direction, if you don't mind. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we're talking that she was forgiven for she loved much 
and the same, you know, love little. One of the greatest commandments we are ever given is to love, charity, how charity is the greatest of all. Yeah. And the commandments are based solely on love. They are. And uh, so I'm wondering if part of the healing that we all go through is to learn to love there you go. ourselves, there you go. others, and God. As we love ourselves, think about how healing that is. And then especially if we've got, uh, come on, grandmas, when, if you've got a grandkid that has scuffed their knee or something like that, what do you do? Well, serves you right. I can't believe, you know, you need to c come talk to me after that thing is healed up and maybe we can talk about uh, and hope you learned your lesson on this one. What are we more likely to do? Kiss them, Kiss scoop them together, love on them, heal them. Put a Band-Aid on it, you know. We're about healing and loving. And I, that's why I think this is such a beautiful phrase. This idea of salvation too falls down is totally consistent with the idea of who does he call the brokenhearted, the contrite spirit, those who've been hurt. Yeah. You know, getting back to your term, hurtfulness. Yeah. And, and what, what Nephi's trying to say is the result of what is about to happen. Now I want to walk you through what I think is what he's talking about is that the, but the Gentiles stay in a state of woundedness from which they're not finding healing. It's like a continual wound that won't heal. Okay, Joan? Uh, we believe, you know, about people being ill and stuff, about the healing, but there still is. There's still a feeling out there, even in other in Christian world, that if someone gets sick or something happens, that that's a punishment for them. Yeah, yeah. If we're not careful, then then our our wounds tend to be God's retribution because we haven't hurt enough. You know, if you're talking about I need to do repentance, penance, pain for my sins, and repentance is repentance should be painful, really, really painful, so you'll never do it again. It's based on our understanding of the criminal system, right? One of my grandsons was born with a problem leg, and the doctor can tell them exactly what gene caused it and what point in the gestation it happened. But he told my son and his wife, don't go there. Don't start thinking about what you were doing at that yeah. time or why you were visiting or whatever. Right. Don't go there. But there was, I've heard people say, oh, I wonder what the mother did. Yeah. Well, and people come into my office all the time and say, I wonder what lesson I'm supposed to learn here. You know, God obviously gave this to me. Now, at what point am I going to finally have learned my lesson so I won't repeat it? Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. wondering what lesson you're supposed to learn might not be healthy, <laughs> but wondering what lesson you can learn there you go. can be very healthy. Very healthy, right? Does that make sense? In other words, there are lessons that come from adversity. There can be. Yes. <laughs> Unless. You talk about repentance being painful. Retribution is painful. A justice can be painful. Bitterness can uh, be painful. Repentance is sanctifying. Depending on how we approach it. Sanctification is not painful. That, exactly. Because now you're being, because it's about healing, not about being punished. Yeah. Okay. We have one more here. Uh, even the scriptures say, well, what sin did this man commit? Yeah, there's got to be. So, they, so this is not a new thing. No, no, we've been doing this for the longest time. Okay, now, so, so you get this idea, so we're on board with woundedness. Now, 
But look at what look at what Joseph did. And I had to ultimately, I'm back in now first Nephi 13. I believe that Joseph made this change in 1837 because it was consistent with a, with a story that was going on here. Um, and so in, in some ways I'm now on board with all due respect how much I, I uh, respect the Gibbons. I think he made the right change. Yeah. So when, when people talk about whether blindness or woundedness was wrong, neither one was wrong. If this, the, Joseph Smith would not have allowed the book to be published right. with the inappropriate, unacceptable word in it. Yeah. But sometimes things change, environments change, and, and it can change to where there's a better word. Right. We, we look at the song, uh, you know, where it says, teach me all that I must know. I know. Right. And the prophet comes out and says, teach me all that I must do. Yeah. And then I think most of us might recognize that teach me what I should become. Yes, would, be would even be even better. But right. Right. the world isn't ready for teach me what I might become. become. And so uh, we, we go to what's best for the audience. Yeah, and I think he did this. And, and, and in doing that, what he did is he made blindness and woundedness synonymous. And, and, and let me show you why I think that is such. So if you see blindness and woundedness together, then you're going to see how blindness creates wounds. Okay? So, so to, to set it up, um, if we go to, I'm going to go for just a second, one more chapter, the first part of 1 Nephi 14. Verse 1. And it came to pass that if the Gentiles shall hearken unto the Lamb of God in that day, he shall manifest himself unto them in word, also in power, in very deed, to do something interesting. I will take away their what? Stumbling blocks. Whoa. Okay, I think I, I spent a couple of days working on stumbling blocks, trying to get the, the, uh, the roots of where this comes from, and, and discover something interesting. Okay? Because it's easy to think about stumbling blocks like, like it's, the, it's 3 a.m. and you're stumbling through your living room and you find the stumbling blocks. You know, grandkids left the Legos out and you found the stumbling blocks. <laughs> Literally, right? Uh, or that things have been placed in the way and you would think, who would put out a stumbling block? Because it looks like Stumbling blocks get put out oft times by other people to cause problems for somebody else. Okay? Well, as it turns out, as I was researching stumbling blocks, the farthest back I could go was that it suggested that a stumbling block was actually most synonymous. Um, you, you ever watched a, 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 like a, an old cartoon, you know, and they're trying to catch maybe the rabbit or something and they will erect like a box and then you put a stick underneath the box and then hiding in the bushes is somebody that's tied a string around the stick and they're sitting in the bush and they're waiting okay and when the animal walks into the box and they pull the stick out and the box falls and they've trapped them or uh, so that's an idea that it's a the stick is an entrance into the trap or if you have the other, um, Hollywood always loves the one with somebody's coming through the jungle and they set off the trip wire and then the netting comes 
out of nowhere and pulls them up and now they're hanging in a net from a tree. Okay? That string that they tripped on, like the stick on the box, is a stumbling block. That is the very, the, the very earliest pieces that they have to stumbling block is like a trip wire to a trap. Does that, does that make sense? Now it ought, to, it ought to change now what we're going to, how we're going to look at this. And this is like the hidden allegory that weaves itself, I think, in and out of this story. Because if it's a stumbling block, what is the very best way to get somebody to stumble and to set off a tripwire? If they see it... The Legos work better when you're blind because there's no light. <laughs> yes, they do. Exactly. You're told, but you're told you're saying, no, let's not be doing this. But sure enough, so you are more likely to stumble and trip and set off the tripwire if, if you can't see it. In other words, if you are blind. Okay, so now put this idea of blindness in there and let me back up just a little bit. We're back, we're going to go back to 1 Nephi 13 and we're going to go to, sorry for the scrolling here, 27, verse 27, 1 Nephi 13. We're going to talk about, for a second here, the plain and precious truths. How they were taken away and what they were. This has been done by that great and abominable church that they might pervert the right ways of the Lord that they might do what? Blind, Blind the eyes and harden the hearts. If we can blind you, then you are more likely to set off the tripwire, the stumbling block. And you're going to see how the great and abominable church is setting off. And part of, so how did they blind people? The first thing they did is that they first of all had to remove from the book of the Lamb of God, which is the Bible, what had to be removed? Plain and precious, Plain and precious truths. What are those? That in other words, in some way, if we can remove these plain and precious truths, you'll be blind, so you'll stumble, and you'll fall into this Satan's snare, and he will trap you, and you will be his. Okay? So the question then remains, so now we start to see, how does he do it? He's got to blind you. He's got to blind you by taking out the plain and precious truths. What are the plain and precious truths that were taken out? That's the big question, I think. Infant baptism. Okay, like infant baptism. Mm -hmm. Anything that would lead to a covenant, because we all know that the covenants were also taken out, right? Okay, so one of the ways, while you're thinking about this, remember we're talking about plain and precious truths that were taught early on. Abraham, Isaac, J Jacob, Moses, Abraham, they knew these plain and precious truths. Somewhere in the process, either the Old Testament, maybe under Josiah, 
or the great and abominable that is taking things out in the first century. They're removing truths out. And we know the things are going to be left out because we know what was taught anciently and we know what Joseph Smith restored. What is it that wasn't there for centuries that Joseph Smith had to restore that was taken out? The Adam and Eve story. Adam and Eve. Okay, you're getting it. Yeah? The idea of no marriage in heaven. The Godhead. Here, here's some of them that jumped out here. If you can see this. Okay. Plain and precious truths include some really powerful ones. Yeah. What's that? Yes. Right. See, for instance, we've got things like a more elaborate doctrine of the atonement. The, how extensive and what the atonement does. Okay? That got, that somehow that gets taken out. And you'll find that one of the reasons why they had a harder time taking it out of Isaiah, it's there in Isaiah, it's just it hidden. It's in code. So they had a harder time removing it from Isaiah. Okay? Isn't that wonderful? Okay? But again, if you look at the difference between, how much do we know if you go to the Bible, how much do we know about Melchizedek? Hardly. Zippo. What do we know from the Pearl of Great Price? Wow. If we go to the Bible, how much do we know about Enoch and Zion and becoming a Zion people and all of that? Only his name. Yeah, about all, all you know is his name. If you, go to the, if you go to the book of Moses revealed to Joseph Smith, suddenly we get this whole narrative of Zion and Enoch and all that kind of stuff. Okay? Yeah. The whole plan. The whole plan, yeah, is really missing. If the plan simply in the Middle Ages was reduced to sin and criminal thing, then it's all about being saved and going to heaven. There's nothing there about the rest of your family. There's nothing there about the other generations. There's nothing there about other people that never had a chance to hear the gospel. It was simply a one-on-one. -on -one. Will I make it to heaven? How big is my harp and how big is my mansion? That all gets left out, and now it doesn't. Okay. So in uh, I don't know if we're three or four weeks ahead, but in Second Nephi, <laughs> you, you tend to do that, but yeah. Second <laughs> Nephi verse. Uh, well, in Second Nephi verse uh, chapter one, it talks about Nephi is going to build a temple. Yeah. And Jacob talks about what will happen if the people fall away, and in verse ten of Second Nephi one. Uh, yeah. Go ahead. Behold. When the time cometh that they shall dwindle in unbelief, after they have received so great, great blessings from the hand of the Lord, having a knowledge of the creation of the earth, there, there's one, and all men, yeah. knowing the great and marvelous works of the Lord from the creation of the world, having power given to them to do all things by faith, having all the commandments from the beginning, and having been brought by brought by his infinite goodness into the, this precious land of promise. To, uh, it goes on. To me, it's, it Did appears it? to be clear that he's talking about people who have received uh, temple ordinances and covenants, made temple covenants. Yeah. And if they fall away or if they lose those things. And, and so if we lose that part of the gospel... Yeah. We're in trouble. 
Yeah, and, and, and yet even something as simple as what, what exactly was going on in the Garden of Eden, if we talk to our evangelical friends, what are they going to say happened in the Garden? Well, they, you know, Adam and Eve fell. Yes. The Catholics, uh, they believe... And it's Eve, right. Eve's the, Eve's the villain in this. They believe that if Adam and Eve hadn't partaken of the fruit, we'd all be living in the Garden of Eden. Uh, right. They don't realize that, hey, my great-grandfather would have eaten the thing anyway, and so our family wouldn't be in the Garden of Eden. <laughs> but yours still would. Yeah. So, uh, they, don't under, they don't have any reconciliation. The, the, they, don't, they don't get that. Isn't that amazing? And so everything that happened, and even the... What happens then with original sin? You're talking about infant baptism. Once you go down that road of original sin, that everybody is born tainted, that every infant born into the earth is still filled with Adam's sin, now you've got to do something to rectify it, both on the front end, infant baptism, and then on the back end in terms of purgatory, because you're sending infants to hell, you're sending Jews in the Holocaust ovens going right into the fires of Satan under that thing because they never accepted Jesus. And so you see, you hear the box, the stumbling block that they get into where it gets more and more trapped and to a point where there's guy, I know it, it doesn't sound very palatable. No, it doesn't. But it's a stumbling block. I'm trapped there. Okay. Well, they made God an angry God. <laughs> And, they, and they, our relationship with the Lord is different when you're someone you fear. Yes. Who yes. Really love you. And we think we're children of God. I, I wish I'd have included that. The whole nature of God gets changed by this blindness into the stumbling block because now He's the angry God of the Old Testament as opposed to the weeping God that we get in Moses 7. Those are two different people. The weeping God in Moses 7 matches Jesus. The angry God killing off the Canaanites is a, is a stumbling block because of the plain and precious truths that were pulled out that leaves everybody in blindness. Okay? Yeah. They don't explain either where Satan came from. Yeah, where did he come from? And we say, well, wait a minute. You're going to say that Jesus and Satan are brothers? Well, that's just, I can't, so really. Or that God created evil? No, you know, because what's missing is that the, for Christianity, it goes back to the Garden of Eden. And what happened with, um, what, with, what happened with what Joseph gives us? All the way back to the pre-mortal life, to counsels, to understanding, to agency. Joseph moved it back eons, but that was removed either from the Old Testament by Old Testament scholars or... But it trickles into the New Testament for a little while. We get origin. We get a few others preaching a pre-existence. And then they're declared heretics. And they're immediately re removed out of that. Yeah. So, uh, you know, our doctrine is condemned by many churches. Oh, yeah. Because we claim that Lucifer is a, a son of God or whatever yeah. like that. Yeah. But those same churches, their doctrine says that God created everything out of nothing. So so if everything was created out of nothing, where did Lucifer come from? Inside see the the funny thing about inside a trap, if you flip if you trip over if you're blind, you trip over the stumbling block. You end up into a trap. Now you're in a place where you start feeling you you're you're trapped. You can't get outside this trap. I remember sitting with a 
with a, uh, a young Baptist couple and, and the missionaries. And we got to this point where I was saying, hey, you know, if you've got, you got people that a missionary, it's the old story, of the missionary goes down the jungle in Africa and he goes to the right and saves a village for Jesus. But that means he left out the ones on the left and that village goes to hell because the missionary went to the right. I said, what about is salvation for the village on the left? Are those just going to be damned because he went right and not left? And they were like, yep. it's, they said, well, it's a mystery. <laughs> it's what he said. It's a mystery. Don't know. Okay, yeah. So I recently heard Terrell Gibbons talking about um, many Christian churches are rethinking those those strict things that they thought were yeah. true and they're going back to like origin and and different things like that and the light of the gospel is on the earth so it's inspiring people whether they realize it or not and they're starting to get rid of things like purgatory and starting to get rid of things like an angry god and find that God is more loving in the scriptures. So it's really exciting to see that transformation starting to happen. Right. And remember, ultimately in here, and I'm not going to find it without you guys getting seasick. because I'm. <laughs> remember, he's going to say that these plain and precious truths uh, were plain to the understanding of men. Right. It makes sense. Uh, I know that, Cindy, you had a number of conversations with uh, people when you were working at EDS, uh, wonderful people in, in churches, and you would say, what, here's what we believe, and, and they'd say, we believe that too. And you'd say, uh, no, your church doesn't really kind of teach that. Well, it doesn't. And, they, and then you would say what? Ask Go ask your minister. And then they would come back and say what? <laughs> You're always getting me in trouble with my minister. <laughs> I believe that we're married in heaven. Uh, I don't know that your church teaches that. It should. Go ask your minister. Oh, he says no. Really? You know, again, think about being trapped inside that box. Yeah. I got a couple of comment or questions. You know, go back to verse, was it 26 where? The original blindness? Well, right, right there. The most abominable above all, all other churches. So that, yeah. You know, most Latter-day Saints, Bruce R. McConkie had that. I know. McConkie doctrine. Anyway, but does it really matter where Lucifer is because he's a master of chaos anyway. And, and it wasn't just the Catholic Church because then you have the Church of England, like, you know, the king one. Yeah. Over, then you have the Reformation and, and they all figure it out because of man's wisdom and not God's. And so before long, you got so many, you know, you really notice those differences when you go on a mission. And somebody was born into a Catholic family, they realized that the Catholic was way off base, so they become a whatever. And then you have people coming to America, and you got all kinds of feel-good churches, and 